2: Right at home.
3: Go to prettilitter.com and use code ACAST for twenty percent off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
4: Welcome to two black guys with good credit, the show for the financially curious and the financially knowledgeable. Today we are discussing an old topic that has recently become a major topic of conversation politically for elected officials and for the general public. We're calling this show the big payback. Sean, do you know what the topic? I'm referring to is,
5: Matt. Matt, my palms are sweating. My hand, my am I nervous? This is the topic I wanted to discuss, and I thought I'd bring in, I think the mo- the person who can best discuss it, who's wanted all over the country just to talk about this one topic. So yes, well, I know what this topic is. Yes, I'm ready for this show. Yes, I'm super excited, and I'm going to say it. We have our good friend William Darity. Part of today's show, I'm super excited, and we're talking about reparations. Sorry, Matt, I had to give it all in.
4: Hey, no, I'm excited. <laughs> uh, so let's welcome William Darity. Thank you for joining welcome. us, sir.
5: Thank you. Glad and to be here. And we have the privilege of calling him Sandy throughout this show, Matt, just to let you know.
4: Absolutely. I do feel <laughs> special. <laughs> 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 well, but, but,
5: but it's coming like years. a hurricane, Matt. It's coming like a hurricane. Do you get it? You didn't get it, did you? <laughs>
4: Like Hurricane Sandy? Okay, got it. All right, well, before we get started, started, Dion, why don't you set us up with a little history on
0: reparations? I'd be happy to, Mr. Smith. Uh, Reparations for slavery in America, uh, they were approved back in 1865. They were actually approved. As the Civil War wound down in 1865, General William T. Sherman made the promise that we that would become to be known the 40 acres and a mule. So redistributing a huge tract of Atlantic coastline to black Americans, recently freed from bondage. President Abraham Lincoln and Congress gave their thumbs up, right, but feeling good, right? And soon 40,000 freedmen in the South had started to plant and build. Within months of Lincoln's assassination though, President Johnson rescinded the order and returned the land to the for its former owners. Congress made another attempt at compensation, but Johnson vetoed it.
4: Sandy, is this is this accurate history?
1: Oh, it's on point. It's absolutely accurate. Uh, in uh, January 1865, Sherman meets with a group of black leaders in Savannah, Georgia, and uh, asks them, what is it you want uh, in the aftermath of the war? their spokesperson, a gentleman named uh, Garrison Frazier, who was from Granville County in North Carolina. And I think they were all ministers, but uh, Frazier was the individual who they chose to speak for them. And he essentially said, we want land and we want to be left alone. Uh, And so within, I think two days, Sherman issues special orders number 15, which assigns essentially 5.3 million of acres of land stretching from the sea islands of Charleston into Northern Florida to the formerly enslaved. And this was a prelude to what presumably was going to be some sort of 40 million acre uh, land allotment. Uh, But but as Dion pointed out, uh, before the year was out, Uh, Andrew Johnson, Lincoln's successor, person who I sometimes say is the worst president the United States ever had, Ah. despite the current one. Uh, (laughs) Oh! uh, uh, That that, um, he he rescinded. He reneged. Sermon's special order and restored the land to the former slaveholders, which is, Mm. you know, even the deeper that was associated with the failure to provide folks with restitution that they deserved.
4: Well, that, that's such a crazy story because I think a lot of us weren't unaware of that. Um, this Doing research for this interview and this show has has been eye-opening, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners were unaware of that this part of the history. But before we go deeper into reparations, we just want to hear a little bit of, of your backstory, Sandy. Can you tell us kind of um, who you are in terms of what you do at Duke and your studies and just give us a little context of you being an expert on this topic?
1: Uh, okay, so I, I guess <laughs> I guess I'll accept the accolade of being an expert on this stuff. Uh,
4: so yes, humble. take it.
5: You are the expert. Uh, uh, Google so, reparations. Your name comes up. Okay, that's the expert.
4: <laughs>
1: so, so well, well, let me say this. You know, uh, about 30 years ago, I was another reparations skeptic, and uh, I actually, uh, you know, I, ne- I never thought reparations was morally wrong. I just thought it was unrealistic that it would ever happen. And I know that we hear people say that today. Um, But uh, about that time, I think it was 1989, um, an economist named Richard America uh, approached me about writing the introduction to a volume that he was editing that was subsequently called The Wealth of Races. And uh, I've told this story many times, but. What's what's interesting about about my experience in this case is uh, I told Richard that I probably shouldn't write this introduction because I didn't believe that there was any realistic opportunity for reparations to actually take place, and Richard said to me, uh, "Please read the essays and write whatever you want, whatever you want in the introduction." And mm-hmm. so I started reading the essays, and the more that I read, the more I had the sense that the level of atrocities that had been uh, inflicted on black Americans were so severe that actually in some respects the only answer was really reparations. And I decided that despite the fact that the odds looked extremely long, I was going to work on this and I would become an advocate for reparations. And that's been the case for uh, for about 30 years now. Um, I'm a, a faculty member at Duke University. I teach in public policy, African and African American studies. Uh, and I'm trained as an economist, uh, and uh, the work on reparations is really central to my life now. Uh, and uh, I have no idea where this is all going to lead, but I hope it will lead to the actualization of restitution for black America.
5: Well, let me say this, I am, you know, I, I've kind of delved into understanding reparations, understanding, you know, how it could be laid out, how can it be achieved? Like, I'm, I'm a numbers guy, and I just got to see things in black and white. And I, and I was skeptical a little bit until I started kind of reading, digging more into what your plan is and how you want to roll it out. So what I'm curious to know is, you know, how were, why were you initially a skeptic of the, of the whole idea of reparations?
1: I think I was a skeptic for purely political reasons, that I just didn't think this is something that America would ever adopt. Uh, but then I, you know, ultimately I said to myself, well, if I was in South Africa in 1953 or 54, I'd probably think that apartheid would never come to an end, but that didn't mean that I I shouldn't fight against it if I had the wherewithal. Uh, and if it was 1819 in the United States, I'd probably think slavery will never come to an end, but that wouldn't mean that I shouldn't fight against it there either. Right. Right. so this is actually a positive act. It's a it's not it's not fighting against something, it's fighting for something. And uh, and and even though the odds may still seem somewhat long, it's the right thing to do and so I'm going to try well, to
4: push this well, simple question but nec- but why why would you say a reparations necessary for someone who doesn't get it like what would be your answer to that simple question?
1: Uh, my answer would be that the entire structure of the things that we observe as racial inequalities in the United States are a consequence of, uh, of, of the way in which the history of, of the United States has unfolded with respect to white, white supremacy. And so what we observe today is the consequence of inequitable and unfair conditions. Uh, it's also the consequence of atrocities. And so, to the extent that today's conditions are a product of this historical trajectory, uh, we, we're long overdue for addressing it. Uh, I think 155 years overdue. You know, the fact that the formerly enslaved did not get i restita- am rest, sorry—restitution upon emancipation has just carried over into a wide variety of effects that have led to this enormous racial wealth differential we observe today. Uh, And that's one of the centerpieces of our book, where we talk about the fact that Black Americans constitute about 13% of the nation's population, but only have about 2.5% of the nation's wealth. And that translates effectively into an $800,000 differential in net worth between uh, black and white households on well,
5: average congratulations on that because that's the trending number now because of your work that you've put together with your book that 800,000 now that number Alexandria. is kind of yeah that figure it's it's a trending number and, and I'll tell you this you know I just look at things from a straight business point and I, I don't know how anybody cannot see reparations being valid in a sense I just was always concerned about how you do implement it because 400 years of free labor 400 years of free labor 400 years of obtaining um, real estate, Will gain returns exponentially.
4: Well, let, let me let me ask. Then interject this to your point, Sean. Like, but now that we we all pretty much agree, it's 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 necessary and it's it it makes sense. But but who? What's the criteria? Who gets reparations? Is it? You know, the descendants of slaves. Like one drop of blood. Like, how do we determine who would be? Like, how would that be determined? Who,
5: who because it's gets- not determined by skin color. Just so everybody knows, I'm going to let the doctor like answer. Like the,
4: the brown th- paperback test? What do you mean?
5: <laughs> yeah, it's not like. Well, I'll let Dr. Uh, Sandy answer the question.
4: So, Sorry. no, it, it, it's, it's not a
1: DNA test. It's not a skin shade test. There are two criteria that we offer in, uh, in From Here to Equality. Uh, the first is that an individual w- <clears throat> would have to demonstrate that they have at least one ancestor who was enslaved in the United States. At least one. Okay, but. That's it. And then secondly, the individual would have to demonstrate that they self-identified as black, Negro, or African-American for at least 12 years before the adoption of the reparations program or the adoption of a study commission for a reparations program. Uh, The first criterion is what we call a lineage standard. Uh, This is the connection that has to be made to the individuals who were denied the 40 acre land grants. And the second condition or criterion is what we call an identity standard. Uh, We are very concerned that once it becomes apparent that there is going to be a financial benefit to being black in the United States, that there are gonna be a bunch of people who would <laughs> declare their blackness. And so we wanna make sure that people have indicated that they were black long before there was any evidence of a financial benefit from doing so.
0: I just want to add the one thing. I'm not sure if our audience is clear that you wrote this book, From Here to Equality, so I want to make sure we shared that. Yeah, I wrote it
1: with, yes. with, with with my partner,
5: Kirsten Mullen. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. but let 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 I I want you to be
5: judge and jury. So I want to give a couple scenarios. Okay, three yeah. out of the four people that are part of this podcast were of Caribbean descent, uh, born in Canada. Would we qualify for reparations?
1: You would not qualify reparations on that criterion unless your your families have some intermarriage with uh, with Black American descendants of U.S. slavery. Now, you know, would, would you qualify for reparations in the context of another country that is a country that has engaged in atrocities towards black people or a country that was colonized or engaged in enslavement of black people? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a record in, in the context of Canada of uh, historical atrocities against black yeah. people also. Yeah, but- uh, I think most people don't realize that life in Canada has been inequitable for black people, but Absolutely. there certainly is a case there. Uh, and I would say, you know, suppose people are, are immigrants from Haiti. Well, I think that their, their cause or case for reparations must be tied to Haiti's claim on France. Uh, And the irony with respect to to Haiti is, of course, uh, Haiti paid reparations to France, which is absolutely insane. Wow. So you're trying to tell me, Doctor, that Michael Jackson's children would
5: get reparations and I would get nothing. And there Uh, is. Why does (laughs) it go. that's
1: uh they'd be alive for reparation I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I, that's the case to the extent that they're. <laughs> oh is. my god i'm <laughs> think, uh, sorry
0: i'm sorry i said you had done a talk at um was it the university of chicago yeah. And you said if you want University to, of one, to go, in University of Illinois Chicago. And you said, well, if you want to move to a country leave your island and move to a country or, you know, another country, move to one with lots, you know, how did you say it? I but said basically you know, yeah. if, you, if
1: you migrate voluntarily to yes. a country that's racist, I don't know how you can turn around and ask for reparations. I I
4: am sorry. I mean, <laughs>
1: something contradictory about
4: that. Well, Sandy, can you explain the three requirements that you believe are necessary? for reparations to be successful. I think you like acknowledgement, apology, and atonement, was that
1: correct? Uh, It's acknowledgement, redress, and closure. And that's that's actually the characteristics of what defines uh, a reparations project. And it's acknowledgement, redress, and closure for grievous injustices. Uh, So acknowledgement is in part the apology, but it's also a recognition on the part of the culpable party that they, They benefited from the atrocities that have been executed. Uh, Redress is uh, the restitution that needs to be provided. And of course, historically, that typically has meant some type of financial compensation for the victimized community. Uh, If we think about uh, the German reparations for victims of the Holocaust, this involved direct monetary payments. Uh, if we think about the American reparations for victims of uh, of the Japanese American incarceration during World War II, uh, that was a monetary payment of twenty thousand dollars per person. Uh, and even if we think about the federal government providing funds for uh, the families who lost loved ones in the nine one one attacks, again, monetary compensation to those families. And so, you know, from that perspective, restitution for black Americans must involve some form of monetary compensation. Uh, In our book, we focus heavily on eliminating racial wealth disparities. And then the final component is closure, uh, which means that the account is is settled, that both the culpable party and the victimized party come to an agreement that the bill has been paid. And the victimized party won't make any more claims unless there's a renewal of atrocities or a new wave of atrocities takes place,
5: which is coming, <laughs> somewhat happening now. If you ask me, if you ask my opinion, so there yeah. may be a second payment due. But <laughs> I get it. You only get paid once. Can't come back. Don't ask us for more. This is it. And the eight hundred thousand. Would it be per family or per individual? So. It, so eight hundred
1: thousand right. dollars is the low end estimate, and it is. Wow, the uh, low it end. Be, it would be per household. Uh, and uh, you know, we'll have to see what the 2019 data says, because the $800,000 figure is based on the 2016 data of gotcha. mean differences in, in wealth between black and white households. Uh, and I'm not sure what the 2019 data will show yet, because the Federal Reserve hasn't put out the survey of consumer finances yet. And, and even more disturbing, of course, is in the midst of the coronavirus, I suspect that racial wealth differences are expanding much, much further. Uh, so, I, you know, the number, the $800,000 number per household is based on 2016 data, and it it may need to be revised as we learn more about what's happening to, uh, to to wealth inequality in the United States.
4: You've discussed that reparations are not solely being distributed because of slavery, but because of Jim Crow, wage disparities, systemic, you know, discrimination. Can can you talk about that a little bit, But it's not just slavery? Yeah.
1: uh, You know, in fact, I think one of the critical factors is in the immediate aftermath of slavery is something that we've been talking about here, is the failure to provide the formerly enslaved with any restitution and what the intergenerational consequences have been. Uh, I think uh, you know, at the same time as, as, as uh, the formerly enslaved got nothing, uh, the Homestead Act was activated. Uh, I think it was first introduced in 1862 during the midst of the Civil War, and the Homestead Act provided 160-acre tracts of land distributed almost exclusively to white Americans in the western part of the United States on territory that was taken from the native population. Uh, this was the process of colonial settler activity in the western part of the United States. And uh, I think that Trina Williams has estimated that anywhere from 45 million to 90 million living white Americans are beneficiaries of those land allocations. And so when people say that, you know, their family made it on their own uh, by dint of their hard effort, they're ignoring the fact that white Americans typically have received a set of handouts from the federal government that were not insubstantial, and, and the first significant wave of that—well, well, actually, I argue that, uh, that slavery was the first form of white affirmative action in the United <laughs> States. Uh, But but the second form were the land allocations Uh. under the Homestead Act. But the other thing that we try to point out in our book is, well, if you think about it from a generational standpoint, slavery actually was not that long ago. Uh, And in one of the most uh, interesting and perhaps extreme examples, we mention a woman named Hortense McClinton, who was the first known Black faculty member at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Well, what's significant about Hortense McClinton, besides her uh, extraordinary career accomplishments, is the fact that her father was a person who was born into slavery. And she is still living. She's 104 years of age. Uh, But her father was born in 1864, the year before slavery ended. And she is a descendant, a direct descendant of somebody who was enslaved. And then we talk about other families where the proximity is not quite as close, but families where it's three generations away. In my own case, uh, my great-grandmother was the daughter of people who were enslaved on Rose Hill Plantation in North Carolina. And so I'm the fourth generation and my sons are the fifth. Uh, But this is, uh, you know, if you you think about this from a generational perspective, it really wasn't all that long ago. And the repercussions are still carrying over to the present moment.
5: No, I see it. I I teach in inner city schools and, you know, I can just tell the effects of slavery. I feel it. And and the level of education, the mindset and just the, the, the level of not access to wealth. You know, and how, how far we are behind the eight ball, you know, even me going into the corporate world and hearing what my white counterparts had versus what I had coming into the game. It's its a whole different it's a whole different playing field.
1: You yeah, know, there's and, an amazing story that, uh, you know, is really illustrative of this that's in the academic world where uh, one of my black graduate students said that she was complaining to some of her peers about the difficulty she was having uh meeting expenses, and they said, oh, really? Said, don't you just use your trust account? Oh. Wow. Wow. I want one of
5: those. (laughs) Well, I I remember when I was in university, just to give a quick story before we go to break, um, I went to school, and some of my Jewish classmates, they were looking to buy a property, and and they wanted to buy a commercial building. And they asked me, I was so surprised, Sean, do you want to get in? Do you want to partner with us to buy this building? And I couldn't fathom, like, where are you gonna get the money from? Like, how is this money gonna come up? Well, yeah, it's a great idea in, pra- in, pra- in practice, but how- where am I gonna get the money? I'm in university. I'm just trying to make my bills. And they were like, oh, we just go to the rabbi. We tell the rabbi what we're trying to do, and the rabbi will then tell everybody in the synagogue what they're trying to, and he'll raise the money for us, and then we pay back the rabbi. We pay back the rabbi. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> and I was like, you know, and and I, you know, I had to downplay, like, you know, it's bad timing for me. But it was once again that's. We're not, we haven't been able to fortune our community to have that kind of access.
1: Yeah, no, I had no idea that rabbis sometimes are real estate magnates.
4: Oh,
5: yeah, they're the GM. (laughs) They're they're the CEO of the synagogue. (laughs) (laughs) So,
4: Sandy, can you give us a value of the wealth created from the free labor derived from slavery up to and including the modern day prison industrial complex? Is there a way to calculate how much American wealth has come from this?
1: Uh, yes, there are ways to calculate this. I, I'm not sure that I've done all the calculations. Uh, my colleague, Thomas Kramer, at the University of Connecticut, is a political scientist who uh, is the lead author on this paper that we just put out that the uh, the right-wing media seized upon, because there's a number in there at the upper end of our estimates of $6.2 quadrillion. Uh <laughs> Nowhere in the paper do we say that that's the appropriate measure of the uh, of the reparations bill, but that's what they 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 seized to find necessarily. Uh, but that was a measure that was generated by starting the count in 1619 and carrying it up for the unpaid labor and the stolen time. Because in effect, if you're, if you're enslaved, it's not just a matter of you not receiving wages. I mean, all of your time is the property of whoever is, is your owner. Wow. Uh, and so, um, so, so Kramer counted it that way and, and then started at 1619 and came up with a figure uh, in the vicinity of uh, $6.2 quadrillion dollars. Uh, but if you, if you start in 1776, which is more reasonable because that's when the Republic of the, uh, the Republic is formed, uh, then you get closer to a figure in the vicinity of $14 trillion. Okay. Um, uh, and, and um, uh, in, in, uh, at the, uh, during, the, during the end of, of, uh, of the antebellum period, uh, the Confederate, uh, The Confederate cabinet member, Judah P. Benjamin, estimated that the value of enslaved people in the United States was about $4 billion in 1860. And if you were to convert that into uh, an amount, a corresponding amount today, then you're talking about something in the vicinity of uh, I believe $2 trillion or so. Right. So that's another way to think about the valuation. Uh, but what we choose to do in, in, in uh, from here to equality is to argue that it's the racial wealth gap that should be used to measure or index the degree of deprivation that's been imposed upon living Black American descendants of U.S. slavery. And so we calculate what it would take to eliminate that differential, and we estimate that it would be somewhere between 10 to $12 trillion. Uh, and that's that is- the focus of our work. Uh, okay. Which is a little bit different from 6.2 quadrillion dollars, but you know, the more the better. As far Got as up- I'll, right. I'll, I'll take the, All I'll right. take
5: the 800,000 that I don't qualify for. I'll take that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, We're- so, so you should partner with someone.
5: I'm looking for that black American woman, <laughs> Sandy. You have any daughters there available? I'm free and single. <laughs> all right. Well, on that note, we're going to take
1: a quick break. I, you know, I don't, I don't mind creating incentives for black uh, folks to marry one
4: another. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, uh, before we, before we go in. Before we go any further down that road, we're going to take a quick break today on Two Black Guys with Good Credit. We're discussing the big payback, reparations. We've discussed why reparations are necessary. And when we come back, we're going to dispel some myths and misconceptions. So stay tuned for more Two Black Guys with Good Credit. We'll be right back. Black guys. With good. Welcome back to Two Black Guys with Good Credit, the show for the financially curious and the financially knowledgeable. Today, we are discussing reparations. This show is about the big payback and we are joined by a very uh, knowledgeable guest, Sandy, Dr. William Darity. But uh, since he's a close friend of ours now, we're calling him (laughs) Sandy. (laughs) Um, But as, as we discussed in the first section, we talked about why reparations are necessary. In this section, we wanna discuss or we wanna debunk some of the myths and clear up some misconceptions. Surrounding- we wanna get things
5: straight. All the people that have these myths and these things that, that just don't make sense, we're gonna clear the air now and let people know what the real deal is. Because I'm yeah. tired of hearing people come up with these horrible statements that don't even make sense. You know, I'll call them quote unquote Trump like statements. So we're gonna to- <laughs> So we're gonna now debunk Matt. That's what we're gonna do.
4: All right, well the first statement to debunk or clear up is can you explain the real story of the term 40 acres and a mule for you know can you explain just what you know for the it's people like who do not get started. Field, yes you know like mm-hmm. uh, we talked about it a little bit earlier with with lincoln and but can you, you know, t- tell people about that phrase
1: you know so the language 40 acres is explicitly in uh, in sherman's special orders number no. 15 which was issued in january 1865 <clears throat> the mule refers to access to pack animals that uh, that the uh, that the Union Army had as surplus that they were going to permit the formerly uh, enslaved to take uh, to help them work on the land that they were going to have access to. Wow. Uh, but but folks got neither. Uh, and you could you could think of uh, the mule as being the equivalent of uh, equipment that might be used on a farm today.
5: That must have right. been a joke I to these people. Mechanical equipment
1: wife. rather than uh, than animal labor. But they, uh, That
5: must have been a joke to them. They would be like, hey, give the blacks a jackass. What are you going to do exactly. with the jackass? <laughs> give them the jackass. Give them the ass. <laughs> No, 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 that's you know, we can make that that's, jackass work. <laughs> a,
1: a jackass, if you don't overwork it, is an extremely productive animal.
5: Exactly, Arlington. Yeah.
4: <laughs> exactly. Well, oh. Well, oh. Low, low. We we, <laughs> we 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 touched on this a little in segment one, but I I want to there's a sentiment that that is heard by people who oppose reparations. You know, and I'll just be specific. Like I've heard some white people. Talk about the fact that they never owned a slave, or you know, they everything's equal now. We've had a black president, or you know, Oprah's rich. You know, why do we need reparations? Can you speak to that opinion? Why why is that a true or false opinion in your mind?
1: So so let me back into that a little bit because uh, you know I, I'm I'm really intrigued by the uh, the the tendency that some people have to observe. Uh, a handful of black celebrities who appear to have some significant amount of money, and then infer that that's a signal about the status of the black community writ large. Uh, But if we want to talk about wealth, uh, about 25% of white American households have a net worth in excess of $1 million. It is only 4% of black American households. And it's within that four percent that you will observe some of these individuals who are entertainers or athletes who have relatively high incomes. Uh, but that's that's uh, that's not an indication of any widespread economic success in the black community, quite the contrary. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so 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 that's that's the, the first point I want to make is that we should not be deceived by the absolutely. celebrities. What does Antonio Moore call it on, on his show, Tone Talks? He calls it the decadent veil, I think, or yeah. something.
2: <laughs> that about sums
1: it up. The, the veil over, over what is really going on.
4: What is really going on, absolutely. Mm. Did you have a, another point to make regarding this? I think you were gonna. Yeah, well, I,
1: I, I wanted to, to, to jump to this question of slavery and who owns slaves and you know, the Mitch McConnell argument that there's no one living today who was enslaved, and there's no one living today who who owned slaves. Uh, and in his case, it's particularly disingenuous because his family was a slave owning family. Uh, and And this is yeah. also, I think I think people underestimate the extent to which there was slave ownership. Right. Particularly in the southern states, I, I've even heard somebody say that only three percent of white Southerners owned slaves, and, and this is an outright lie. Uh, in in the states of the Confederacy that had the lowest proportion of folks who owned slaves, it was upwards of twenty percent of the population. And in the highest range, South Carolina and Mississippi in particular, it was close to half the population who owned at least one human being. Uh, So so uh, so when people say my family never owned Mm -hmm. slaves, I would suggest that they do a little bit of genealogical inquiry, because Mm -hmm. frequently it's the case that that's probably not true. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so free labor. uh, so, 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 that's part of the story. But the other part of the story, of course, is this is not a case that is exclusively about slavery. It is not slavery reparations. It is reparations for black American descendants of u s. slavery for a host of atrocities that extend beyond the period of enslavement. Yes. So
5: find me a way in there, doctor. Let me ask you a question. Here's another thing I want to debunk.
0: Oh, I wanted just to just
4: At the just a
0: quick a quick stat just to kind of get a sense of where um white people um where their their head <gasps> comes to reparations. She said it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the APNORC Center for Public Affairs Research did a poll, and while of course 75 percent of black respondents uh, said they believe that the U.S. government should pay reparations. Uh, to the descendants of enslaved people, just 15% of white participants supported the idea. So, just giving you the sense of the climate in the. In the- and not
5: to get into p- political, based on that statement, you know, I've I was reading. That's why Trump doesn't even believe all these polls that are coming out because he believes in his heart. They say that he believes that that when it comes to voting, people will vote the, people will vote white versus voting they don't want to claim racism and stuff like that now but when it comes to the
1: polls when they're ready to vote
5: they will vote in the way that he's thinking they're gonna vote that's his whole well, that's his well, whole premise well
1: that was clearly true in 2016. we'll yes. we'll see if it's also true in 2020 given everything that's happened but but i want to say this you know that 15 percent figure may look low but it's actually uh encouraging uh, and here's why in the year 2000 when um Michael Dawson and Ravana Popoff did a similar survey. It was 4% of white Americans who were in favor of reparations. So uh, now we're talking about 15%. There's some polls I've seen that put the number in the 20% uh, area, and it's about half of millennials who say that they're in Mm -hmm. favor of reparations. Uh, So if you combine that with a, a current moment in which Uh, People are widely recognizing that Black people have long been subjected to anti-Black police violence. Uh, We may be in a situation, I'm not sure, I'm not good at forecasting, uh, and I don't want to be overly optimistic, but it seems like Mm -hmm. we're in a better situation for trying to push forward with a case for reparations than at any point that I've ever observed in my lifetime, and perhaps since the Reconstruction era. And you
5: mentioned you just mentioned prison. I just want to I just want to kind of pick it back off what you just mentioned about prison because I think in America has what 3 million people incarcerated and I think out of that number more than half are people of color. 2 million, sorry, 2 million, sorry. Yeah. And over half of them are people of color, if not more. And you know, to me once you have once you're in the system in this country, even if you're not incarcerated, it really puts you way behind the game. Like it, like you know, you have it's it's so hard to overcome that. It's so hard to even succeed. And I think, do you feel any way that there should be some form of reparations for even uh, people of color that have been criminal records and so forth?
1: Well, I, I mean, from my perspective, they're eligible for the same reparations that any, uh, any eligible recipient is. Uh, the fact that they're incarcerated doesn't deprive them of the right to receive uh, reparations. Now, if you're thinking that there's uh, a need to make the amount of reparative funds greater for individuals who've been subjected to incarceration. I, I'm open to hearing uh, you know, how we might do that or the case for that. But
5: And even not just in a monetary sense, too, just in a sense where it gives them a fair chance to succeed once they've done their prison term. Like, so, you know, kind of- so,
1: so I want to make a distinction between ending a harm and compensating for a harm. And there are a number of ways in which the lives of people who have been imprisoned, who have finished their terms, are, are constrained. So in many cases, as you know, folks are denied the right to vote. Correct. Uh, in many cases, individuals have a horrible time finding employment. Correct. And so these are things that I, I would say are the kinds of harms or damages that we need to reverse. But that's not quite the same as compensating for the effects of those harms. And I think Malcolm X had a great distinction that he made between pulling the knife out of somebody's back versus healing the wound. And so these preventive measures or reversal measures are the equivalent of pulling the knife out. And that needs to be done. It's essential. But reparations is the equivalent of healing the wound Mm -hmm. or engaging in compensation for the harm. And now, so that leaves open the question of whether or not there should be some differential compensation for individuals who have been incarcerated. And I think that's a discussion worth having, but we have to pull the knife out and we have to do that
4: as well. Well, can can you just talk about the, the bootstrap argument, and to me, it seems like it's a false narrative of like, you know, pull yourself, pull yourselves up by the bootstraps. Like, can you talk about that perception?
1: Well, I mean, you know, there, there's hardly anyone in this country has pulled themselves up by the bootstraps uh, in the sense of going for nut from nothing to something. I mean, even if we go back to the colonial period, and we start talking about people who came as indentured servants, their status was not the equivalent of folks who were enslaved. Because if, their ter- if they live through their their terms of service, uh, they were frequently given significant plots of land under the headright system, or they were allowed to purchase those plots of land fairly inexpensively. Uh, so we tell the story in our book about Reba, Reba McIntyre's uh, six generations back grandfather, uh, who came to the United States as a small child uh, as an indentured servant. And he survives his period of indenture and receives or obtains 300 acres of land uh, under the headright system. And two generations later, his grandson owns six 1,650 acres of land. Uh, uh, I think upwards of about uh, 200 enslaved people and a, a major tavern that was named after the family's last name, Brassfield. Wow. Um, so, you know, there's no sense in which these folks exclusively pulled themselves up by their right. bootstraps uh, and, and they were given substantial boots in the first place. And so uh, I, I think well this is true if people pay careful attention to family histories. Uh, Jennifer Mueller, the, uh, the sociologist, has a great study in which she demonstrates the stories of a number of families that received one hundred and sixty acre land grants under the Homestead Act, and what the consequences have been for the individuals who are their living descendants now. Uh, and I think that that's really, really worth uh, worth reading because it's 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 really a powerful illustration. Uh, and and it's a powerful illustration in light of the fact that once again, that the four million black folks who were, Emancipated from slavery, received absolutely nothing.
0: Wow. And what do you say to the people who believe social programs like affirmative action should be considered?
5: Reparative? Before you answer, let me just say this: like that's one thing that just upsets me when people say, "Well, you've had, you know, you have affirmative action. There's all these kind of social programs for black people now." Isn't that a form of reparations to me? It's it's frustrating because I myself, when I came to this country, I worked at Chase Bank, Payne Webber, American Express, and you know, I think sometimes I was a higher I was hired because maybe I was a person of color and they needed that color in there. But I didn't have once I got in there. There was no advantage that I had. There was nothing that I felt that hey, being a person of color, one of the only person of color in my department, made a difference. So when people say these social programs, it's to me it's it's almost insulting. To say that's 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 cause for compensation.
1: Well, well, let me take on affirmative action first, which is, uh, you know, to me, it's an anti-discrimination measure. It's not a reparations measure. It's again the equivalent of trying to pull the knife out as opposed mm-hmm. to healing the wound. Brother Malcolm. Okay, and so, uh, so, so in that particular case, uh, you know, the point that you make is really, really important. Uh, affirmative action may allow people to get inside the door, but it doesn't guarantee that they will be treated fairly or equitably once they're inside. Right, uh, and, and we know that's not the case. The people are given differential information about promotion opportunities. They may not get promoted, even though they have better credentials than the white folks who are under consideration. Uh, and all of those things are things that cannot be presented, prevented directly by affirmative action. Can be prevented if we actually enforced anti-discrimination laws, and anti-discrimination laws were reasonably applicable. That is to say that people didn't have to prove intent, right. as opposed to demonstrate the effect of certain kinds of actions. But, uh, but yeah, affirmative action in in no way is 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 uh, is reparations. You talk about social programs, right? You know, like. Uh, I, I guess they're usually referring to what what we used to call welfare right. uh, but one of the things that people ignore is the fact that when those programs were first introduced they were systematically designed to exclude black people Right. right.
5: Okay. exactly uh,
1: so when I hear people like uh, John McWhorter saying well you know we've already gotten reparations in the form of social programs I'm not sure what he's doing with that thirty to thirty five year period in which black people basically had no access whatsoever to those to those programs. And so um, so that you know that's another case where people are talking about something constituting reparations, but clearly it does not.
4: Well, Sandy, let, let me ask you this, because I know it's obvious that reparations benefit African Americans, but is there a benefit for white America in, in reparations?
1: So I, I'd love to say that that's definitely the case. What I can say is that they don't necessarily suffer a loss, particularly since we've tried to design an approach to financing reparations that would not involve increasing anybody's tax rate. Uh, so, uh, so, so let me say that at minimum, that there should be no direct harm in an absolute way. Uh, if people are deeply concerned about the relative position of black Americans, yeah, that's going to change under this type of a program. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to make any bones about it. Uh, Some people argue that the provision of reparations would make it possible for black expenditure to constitute some form of a stimulus to the economy. Uh, I'm a little bit cautious about that because I'm not sure how responsive production would be. Uh, I don't know how responsive production would be in an environment in which Uh, We had a relatively high degree of prosperity, but even in this kind of perverse depression that we're experiencing now, to the extent that jobs can't reopen that would have a high risk of infection and are not treated as being essential jobs, uh, then it's not clear that providing people with substantial sums of money to spend will do much of anything more than produce inflation. Right. And And that's the real constraint on federal expenditure is is the inflation risk. So uh, so I want to be careful about making the claim that there would be some economy-wide benefit. I'm not sure. I don't know. Uh, but I, I do want to make the assertion that we can design a reparations project so we could minimize the economic pain of meeting the expenditures. Uh, the economic pain for all Americans. And to be honest with you, like should the unknowns really be your concern? To be quite frank, I mean,
5: you know, if it what if it if it has an effect on the economy good or bad, when is it going to be the perfect timing? I mean, you can look at it from many different ways and I'm like, you know, why should we be so overly concerned of the effects of it? I mean, the stimulus package just went out with just trillions of dollars. You know, right. that's going to cause an inflationary period. I didn't hear anybody arguing that point, you know. So uh,
1: to me it's like you can well, find every well, reason you know, not interestingly to give it. Enough, Interesting enough, it probably isn't particularly inflationary because of the way it was distributed. So a disproportionate amount of the funds went to people with the most incomes. Hey
0: hey. And, wow. and, so,
1: and, and, the, and they don't yeah. have a very high propensity to spend. Spoken from <laughs> the doctor, you're
5: absolutely right. So they're just going to save. They're going to save. The money's not going to go in the economy. Exactly. Yeah. So we could you could say the same assumption for us if you well not me you excluded me from it but people of <laughs> like this if they were to get the eight hundred thousand you know we we may save it we may not we may not there may not be an inflationary period. But you know,
1: in, in fact, if you designed the payments in such a way that they were endowments or trust accounts, then you would not have an enormous burst of expenditure. You would really be be building people's wealth positions, mm-hmm. uh, and so you could not claim that there might be some gigantic stimulus effect associated with the uh, the distribution of.
5: But of I don't work. even think that should be our concern. That's the point I'm trying. It shouldn't even be our yeah, concern. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
4: All right, well, one thing that is our concern is we got to take a commercial break. So we'll be right back with a little more Two Black Guys with Good Credit. We're discussing reparations, and when we come back, we'll break down how it would work.
5: Show me the money. Well, show my people the money, not me specifically. (laughs) (laughs) It's the
4: the big payback. I'm looking for an American
5: woman. Where are you?
4: Welcome back to Two Black Guys with Good Credit. Today we are discussing reparations—the big payback. We have our guest, Dr. William Darity, or as we know him, Sandy. He's the homie now. So,
5: <laughs>
4: but uh, this section we want to discuss with you how reparations would work. Um, you know, how how does this actually technically work? So, I, I just want to lead this off with a question that you know, basically, it's if it's paid out over several years. What about our elderly? Elderly, only, like if if I'm someone who's you know doesn't have 30 years for some long payout, you know, is there some way for the elderly to get a lump sum of, of what's owed to them, or, or does this does this get broken out over years regardless of your age?
1: Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. Uh, it's oh. you know it's a reasonable question and it's something to consider in the logistics of putting this together, but. Uh, hadn't really thought about that. And as someone who's elderly, you know that that's an interesting consideration. But uh, uh, but we I know one, also. I
4: want my mom to get her full her her full <laughs> amount. <laughs> <laughs> but
1: but we do know that there's always issues with grandfathering in a program. And there are going to be some people who don't get the full benefits of the program simply because of the timing of the way in which it's applied, uh, and there, there, you know, there, there, generations of black folks who merited restitution who are not going to get it because they're not living to receive right, it. Right. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, if we could think about a way to uh, to uh, create greater insurance for uh, older black folks to make sure that they benefited fully from the project, I'm very receptive to trying to design ways to do that. My, my
5: thing is, will reparations put black people in a position where they have to kind of prove their blackness, do you think? And will it cause any type of infighting amongst blacks if we, if we get this $800,000 check?
1: So uh, I think that there's a precedent to examine, uh, and uh, I, both, both in terms of potential pros and cons, which is uh, the provision of revenues from casino rights uh, to some Native American tribes. And, uh, you know, I believe that uh, among the Eastern Band of the Cherokee, when uh, individuals reach um, uh, reach a young adulthood, they're actually given a substantial endowment. Uh, I'm not sure what the exact number is. Uh, it, it may be $100,000, but it may be more than that. I'm not positive. Um, but... Um, you know, uh, what we could do is look at what happens to those individuals uh, and figure out if if we're not satisfied with what happens, how we could do it better. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, if, if you gave every black American approximately uh, every black American household uh, in total, because these, these payments would have to be made individually But if the result was that the typical black American household had an additional $800,000 in in resources, you actually would have a relatively even distribution of wealth among black Americans. Uh, Yeah. And and in fact, one of the things that we use, and this will be of interest to you all because you like numbers. uh, One of the measures that we use is the mean to median ratio. And the mean-to-median ratio would decline sharply if each Black household had an additional $800,000. And so I'm not sure why there would necessarily be infighting if you had an equal allocation of the fund in such a way that you more or less created a much greater degree of equality in wealth yeah, across I, I, the entire black population. I,
4: I, I, I don't see any infighting coming if you have giving black folks that if, 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 if I, don't, I don't, I think they'll be just fine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think one of the concerns is that people do need to have preparation to deal with fraud.
5: Absolutely. Right.
1: And, uh, mm-hmm. and I think that that should be part of whatever financial management or literacy dimension there is to the program. I, you know, I've always said, you know, financial literacy is useless if you don't have any finances to manage. (laughs) Uh, But but under these circumstances, (laughs) there would be a significant additional amount of resources for people to manage. And as part of that, uh, what, 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 what we like to call pre reparations preparation, Mm. uh, part of that could be, uh, uh, Informing people how to protect themselves against fraud. Um, yeah, be because that, that's definitely going to be something, and that's going to be directed at elder black people. Yes. Just- absolutely.
5: There'd be so many people trying to get into I mean, you'd even see a, probably a big uh, jump in white males trying to marry black women. <laughs> yes, there might be. <laughs>
1: well, the systems need to hold out for the rich white. <laughs>
0: well, of
4: white matter, do you want to add something there, Matt? No, I was going to say... Speaking of white <laughs> You know, his, his analogy made me think of, like, a, a cookbook does you no good if you don't have any, you know, any food in your refrigerator. You know, it's like, you know, like, having... And financial literacy with no money is like having a cookbook with no food. It's just like that's a great analogy. I just I, I And, and we
5: are a financial literacy program, and that's kind of where I was going to. I think there should be, like, some kind of prerequisite, some kind of, like, just overall training. And I even think a lot – I would even want some of the money to be distributed into communities <laughs> as well, like make it part community-based, purchasing real estate. What, what,
4: what do you mean by that, Sean? Get, get, you're saying that the $800,000 that's coming to my house, you want to take some of that and give it to your community?
5: I think, like – purchasing assets within a community and, and then distributing it through a corporation everybody get equal shares. I I I so, kind of think
4: so, so just so I'm clear, the Canadian wants to take still. I'm I'm, I'm I've up already up. understand
5: I'm not getting five cents, Matt, unless I marry your sister. Okay. <laughs> 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 I'm <not kidding. laughs> but I'm like let's, uplift communities.
1: Let's, let's let's think about it slightly differently. Uh you know, if you're talking about resources where it might amount ultimately to somewhere between 250 to $300,000 per person. Uh, You're talking about a different level of capability to participate in the economy. And so there may be some individuals who do wanna invest in the types of projects that Sean is talking about. Others may want to start their own businesses. Uh, Others may want to devote the resources primarily to education, Uh, but I think it's critical that people Make informed decisions about how to use their resources, which is why I think pre-reparations preparation is potentially a very good idea. But I also think it should be their discretion ultimately.
4: Wow. And Man.
1: and I think that that's why I'm reluctant to place much of an emphasis on uh, on programmatic uses of the funds. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't exclude I'm, those I'm altogether. Uh, you know, I think there would be uh, it would be interesting to provide resources to HBCUs to build their endowments, for example. Right. Um, but I think that, for both symbolic and substantive reasons, the preponderant use of the funds must be direct payments to the eligible recipients.
0: Dion? Yes. Um, you you actually discussed the need for white support actually to get this through in order for reparations to be feasible, right? Yeah. Um, are we in one of the best climates to do to white support at this time to move reparations forward, do you think?
1: Well, in the moment, it's better than it has been. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think that the 2020 election will be very revealing. Uh, I mean, right. if, if 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 Trump is reelected, then that's a signal that... Time um, to go. Time we're to go. serving smoking <laughs> mirrors. <laughs> it's smoking
5: mirrors. Exactly. It's smoking mirrors. Exactly. This is their call. I 100% agree uh, but, with you. But
1: you know, even Biden's election not going to be all that encouraging from my standpoint, given his Uh-oh. history. What will be important is the question of whether or not the House and the Senate uh, are 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 whether whether the House stays uh, Democratic right. and the Senate is turned into uh, into uh, a Democratic Party stronghold. That would be a very different set of circumstances. Uh, almost regardless what happens to the presidency.
4: Well, to that point, we'll to what see. is the what is the process, the governmental process to enact reparations? Is that the president like would would uh, propose it? House, Senate approve it? Is there Supreme Court? Like, what is there a clear path of what has to happen?
1: So, so we consciously have stayed away from the uh, the judicial system uh, for two reasons. Uh, There is no great positive record of the judicial system ruling in favor of efforts to claim reparations. Uh, And I think that there are two issues. One is if the case is brought against the United States government, there's the barrier of sovereign immunity. If the case is brought against individual corporations or institutions that benefited from slavery... Those institutions can legitimately say that what legal. they were engaged in was a legal activity at that Absolutely. time. It was
5: legal. Exactly. So,
1: so, so we say that this has to be legislated by Congress, and that's why it requires a sufficient amount of support, not just from Black Americans, but also from White Americans, for it to become a reality. Uh, it's not going to be legislated by Congress if there's inadequate support from white Americans for it to occur. So that's the real struggle in terms of uh, movement activities is to build support across all of America for the purposes of meeting the meeting the bill that has never been paid.
5: And, and I know I, I'm not supposed to go there, but I wanna go there. I read one of your articles which I found so interesting that you named a certain president that would be against reparations. <laughs> And
1: are you, are, I thought, are, are, uh, are you talking about one who is phenotypically similar to those of us who are having this conversation?
5: Yeah, he's a lighter shade of me and a same similar shade to Matt.
4: And you know, <laughs> I
5: think I think people would be shocked Matt to know. I'm you a hard time. <laughs> <laughs>
4: For the record, I really did not want to go down this path because I, think, I feel like it's. I had the question and they omitted it.
5: These they they omitted. It and I'm like, I thought it was an interesting point. You know, and I well, thought the article you write was funny, so good. Funny, funny, you broke funny, it down sure. so well.
4: I'm not sure what the comment is yeah. to be about What's this, your I question, thought. Sean? What's the, what's, you should, might as well you say it, ask your question, Sean. I mean,
1: I've, I've, I've even written the, written an article which you read. I know, see? I read the article. That's what I said. I'm
5: com. Yeah. The article I read, it was broken down. It was so eloquent in the way you, where you discussed it because I think people didn't understand that, you know, he could make that argument because. His Rajen upbringing,
4: Obama, is what we're talking about. And and
5: don't. and I and I and I, you know, I'm a I'm a fan of Obama, just to be just to be clear. But he didn't he didn't. His mother was obviously was white, and she had her she has a PhD. His grandmother on his mother's side was white as well. And he had in essence, which your articles pointed out, he had some form of reparations. He had a $500,000 um, money given to him. Well, he a didn't have girl.
4: reparations. Not he reparations, had but
5: yeah, finances. <laughs> yeah, sorry, he had sorry, Lego. finances. Get a leg up. He had, he had an inheritance. He had an inheritance, correct, had- correct. Had- correct. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. and I was just thought it was a funny that then he would make the argument that he's, he doesn't see the point of reparations. Yeah. So I thought it was a very good article that you wrote. I don't know if that's the well, question. He's a,
1: he's a very politically cautious individual, and uh, I think he was convinced, and I'm, I'm not sure what he feels in his heart about reparations, right. but I think he was absolutely convinced that it would not benefit him in terms of his electoral position or in terms of his stature and reputation right. to take the step of of advocating reparations. And so there was a certain degree of courage you have to have uh, to to take a stand that may be going against the general sentiment or, or going against the wind. Um, you also have to be willing, I think, and as part of that component of courage, uh, to be willing to risk your reputation in some way, yeah, exactly. um, and and I think you know uh, you know that that's that's been one of my personal strengths is that I have not tended to shy away from advocating what I think is right, just because I'm aware that there are lots of people who don't agree with me. Yeah, because you're I mean you're at Duke you're in the establishment and for you must you must have had
5: had, had a lot of pushback and for you to stay firm since the 80s on this. It, it ha- you had to have your time as well, like turbulence, trying to really stick forward with, move forward with this agenda. I commend you for that. Well,
1: thank you.
4: Yeah. Well, a, a couple more questions. What are your thoughts on, have you read about what's going on in um, Asheville, North Carolina with, I guess they had a vote for like local or regional reparations for black citizens of that city or county? Are you aware of that?
1: I am aware of it.
4: Is that a significant? Can you tell for people who aren't aware of this? What do you? What can you tell us? What just happened? Well, the the
1: City Council uh, agreed that they would set up some type of local commission for the purposes of designing a reparations project there, which would probably be primarily uh, a set of community-based initiatives. so, uh, you know my 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 overall reaction is that I think that these efforts at local and uh, municipal or even state level acts of atonement uh, are admirable, but they should not be confused with reparations. Wow Got it. And I think that there's a, a danger also uh, in that confusion, insofar as efforts are made to pursue, uh, reparations from the United right. States Congress, and people will say, "Well, you've already, got, already it. Did,
4: yeah, yeah. got it." already did. Yeah, uh, yeah, got it.
1: And what's what's interesting is if you think about the numbers that we talk about, the the necessity mm-hmm. of a 10 to 12 trillion dollar allocation to at least get Black Americans up to par with White Americans in terms of proportionate shares of the U.S. wealth distribution. Uh, if that's your objective, it is important to recognize that if you took the entire budgets for all of the states of the United States and all of the municipalities in the United States, it comes to approximately $3 trillion. And that's to meet all of the expenses that they currently have. So there is no way that the states and municipalities on a piecemeal basis or on a collective basis could meet the reparations bill. It has to be done by the federal government. And I would, I would say philosophically, as a matter of principle, it should be done by the federal government because the federal government is the culpable party in terms of creating the authority and legal framework that permitted all of these atrocities to take place.
4: Well, speaking of the federal government, we talked about how in the past Lincoln and how it was reparations were approved and then it got rescinded. So taking us fast forward to today or the future if reparations somehow gets passed federally through the the president and congress how do we ensure that another president doesn't come behind and rescind it again is there a way is there any strategy on how to do it and keep it or is it could that so, same so thing that happened back re- then recension would have again?
1: To be rescission would have to be a congressional act uh, now what a president could do is to try to administer the program so badly that it's aborted. I mean, this this is this is precisely what trump Trump does. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but we would then have to make sure that we were in a a social environment where, there was a sufficient amount of popular support for reparations that something like that would not occur. Uh, We can't guarantee against it, but I think it would be a very dramatic moment in the United States if, in fact, there was a reparations project that passed the United States Congress. Uh, We'll see. I I guess my bigger worry is the United States Supreme Court. Uh, If a case is brought to them over the reparations project, I'm wondering if they would actually uh, they would actually Over. deny it. Uh, and and so I've been thinking that a Congress that passes a reparations plan has to also be prepared to pack the Supreme Court.
4: Wow. Well, Sandy, we thank you for all of this knowledge that you've shared with us on this topic. I know a lot are talking about reparations these days, so I feel, super enlightened having been able to to have you explain it to us. so thank you for that.
1: Thank yeah. you so much for having yeah. me uh, it's been it's been a great conversation. thanks.
0: So yes, Sandy, we would love you for you to share with the audience you know what 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 what's, what are you up to next and where can they find you?
1: Uh, so at the moment, I'm trying to do a lot of work on what needs to be revised in the study commission legislation, HR forty what types of changes need to be made in it, because I I think it's unsatisfactory in its current form, uh, and it needs to either be revised or replaced, and so that's occupying a lot of my time in the present moment. But uh, I'm also doing a lot of work on other kinds of projects that are related to my research center, the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity, that includes uh, projects on the relationship between religious affiliation and health outcomes, uh, includes a project on uh, the history of Black entrepreneurship in Durham, North Carolina, uh, as well as work that we're trying to do on uh, the effects of the coronavirus crisis on individual households' economic well-being. So, so we have got a lot of stuff that that's that's happening right now. And we
0: sure that's, do.
1: That's,
0: yeah. And any handles that we can give the audience or yes. Yeah, so so.
1: I spend too much time on Twitter, but it's at Sandy Darity. You you can you can find me there. Yeah.
4: Are you are you on the gram as well on Instagram or just just Twitter? No,
1: I'm just on Twitter. That's okay. it. <laughs> Not even on Facebook. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Hello,
0: everyone, feel free to tweet, uh, Mr. Dr. Darity. Um, we also, I mean, I, I know I have, just we can't get it all in. So. Definitely send your questions to TBGWGC at gmail.com. Uh, you can certainly keep following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Two Black Guys with Credit.
1: No, I wanted just to say to Sean, oh,
0: sure.
1: You Bayesians need to get your reparations from the United Kingdom. <laughs> Well I wanted to add in that a lot of us Beijing migrated
5: to South Carolina you know during slavery. So I think indirectly Bayesians should qualify because oh, we well, no,
1: I mean if, if Bayesians were were enslaved in South Carolina, then they would qualify seventeen seventy six. Yeah.
5: But, but I think I need to sit on that panel of who's deciding who's getting them or not. I think I'll give a little inside inside lane. <laughs> <laughs> because if Michael Jackson's daughter is getting some I don't care what those numbers say I'm going to be right behind her trying to get mine <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh Dr. Darity you opened up that can of worms <laughs> but thank you again for coming out we really appreciate you and being such a good sport and um, our, to, our, to our audience uh, thank you for always writing in we love to hear from you Um you uh, for leaving a five-star review, it makes others—you know—it it makes it easier for others to find us. Uh, like uh, her name is Zaral A Monet, who left a, a five-star review said, "Love the show, thank you." So she kept it that simple and it that sweet. So thank you, Zari A uh, Monet. My name is Dion Nichols, the lady with the history, the stats, and the cold hard facts. And remember healing can only start with acknowledgement and i'm out
4: okay well thank you d and i'm matt smith one half of two black guys with good credit like i always say nothing changes if nothing changes and i'm out sean linda
5: dr darity sandy I'm, I'm humbled by you being on our show and thank you so much not only for being on our show but for the work that you do and i know um over the years I'm sure it's been a challenge to keep doing and keep moving forward now that it's somewhat quote unquote trending is like it's it's good to be a part of it. But you were you've been through this for the last 30 years of trying to make things right for people of my color. So I just want to say thank you. And I appreciate the, the work that you've been doing over the number of decades. And um, any way that I can support you, please don't hesitate to ask. Once again, thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much.
5: I'm Sean Linda, the better half of Two Black Guys with Good Credit, and I'm out. See you
4: next week. Two Black Guys with
0: Good
4: credits. The Two Black Guys with Good Credit podcast is produced by Matt Smith and Arlington Forbes.